This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Jamie Holcomb, the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Jamie, always a pleasure to have you on. It's my pleasure, Jason. Thanks a lot. So we're also joined by Bo Hutto, the Vice President of Federal at Netscope. Bo, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hey, Jason, it's a pleasure. We are talking about a, a big contract award that uh, PTO made to Netscope, but, but beyond the fact that it's a big contract award, we're really talking about this is the first implementation of something called SASE, Secure Access Service Edge uh, at a major federal agency. Maybe we should say, is Jamie one of the first, if not the first, but let's start at the beginning. What is SASE and why is this so important to you from a zero trust, a cybersecurity perspective? I got to tell you, Jason, the reason SASE is so important to us, I think it's the first foundational piece of the zero trust architecture that we can actually act upon. So with the executive order and zero trust architecture, the fact is, is that it's not one product. It's more of a philosophy. And so I like SASE as that architectural philosophy to ensure that we can identify users and devices and apply the policy-based security controls, delivering that secure access the applications and ensuring that our data is secure. So I look at zero trust and the five pillars, and I try to do it from a pillar one to pillar five. And I always start at the user and the user experience. So that's the identity part of users. That's pillar one. Pillar two, what do users do? They use applications, right? That's pillar two. Pillar three is the applications need data in order to work, pillar three. Pillar four, of course, is where does that data come from? It goes across the network. And finally, what is that network composed of? Pillar five is your devices. So I like the five pillars, and I love the fact that SASE addresses the architecture and that philosophy around it. Netscope is providing us the first time that we can really concentrate on that architecture and the ability to actually go into it and use products, not just one product, but products, in that philosophy for ensuring SASE and zero trust. So you talk about foundational to zero trust. So let's describe what SASE is. When, when people have heard about it, we know a couple things about it. It eliminates the perimeter-based appliances, legacy solutions. It's really a something that's it's cloud-based and what? So give me a sense, and then we'll bring Bo in to talk more specifics. But from your perspective, from where PTO views it, what's how are you going to use it? Well, I like it because the last word, the E, is the edge. And I've been in telecom since I was uh, a little kid. You know, I'm always fascinated by the network, the Internet, and so forth. And the conversation or the philosophical bent, the, the way you can have religion, is either the smarts are in the network or the smarts are on the edge. And the fact of the matter is, I always thought that smarts should be on the edge and let the network just route and transmit the traffic. That doesn't mean to say you can't have smarts within the network. I just think your smarts need to be primarily at the edge and you let the network deliver as much volume as it can. So at the edge, what we're talking about is the identification of users, the identification of devices, and all the things in between, the OSI layers, right? To put them all together in a secure way. 
Netscope, the product, actually provides the ability for that architecture, but there's a lot of other things that you need to plug and play in order to be that secure. So that's what the edge means to me, going out and securing not just one part, but all the parts in an architecture. And Bo, jump in here, because when we get down to, when we talk talk about SASE and and your product, I'm sure, is maybe, uh, I'll call it, Similar, if you will, SASE is, is, is a well-known topic across our uh, technology kind of understanding across the community. But how does it work and, and what's the impact of using this on, on agencies like PTO and others? Absolutely, Jason. So if you think about what SASE is, SASE is an architecture, right? Jamie alluded to, and, and basically it's, it's not necessarily a product. Gartner, as Gartner defines SSE, that that magic quadrant was released this last winter. And that is really the security component, that foundational security component as Gardner would define it as well, to SAS. And then SAS is the architecture. So if you think about what your what Netscope does massively different or what you should be looking for in a SSE SASE type of solution, it really is single pass architecture where you have a single platform that can deliver all of the controls that inherently have been provided on-premise in the past. And when you're thinking about that, you're thinking about what we've built silos of over the last 25 years on-prem. And now all of our data has really moved out to the cloud in a significant way. So that's what the SASE architecture is really bringing to bear is a control vector for your data, whether it's living and breathing on-prem or it's now moved out to cloud services. I think that's a great explanation because we hear architecture and people's eyes start to glaze over and the they feel like, oh no, are an architecture discussion. But what it's, it's doing is driving the rules, the, the, the policies, the user and, and device policies to the edge. So when Jamie Holcomb wants to log on from a Starbucks coffee shop, that SASE will do what? And maybe ask Bo to start, and then I can we can talk more broadly for Jamie. Jamie hit on the OSI layers, right? And as we refer to um, what we do and what a single-pass architecture allows you to do is really there's that last layer, layer eight, right, that is the context layer. And being able to now apply all of the knowledge that you have of the user, the in-device, the location, the risk or the value of the data that's being accessed and being able to, in real time, deliver actually access to that in a least privileged kind of way so that the user still has the ability to go out and access that data likely but it might be in very different form factors than they might have if they're in a very controlled and trusted environment. Let's say working from a home office on a government furnished, you know, piece of equipment and, you know, using a trusted network versus being in that coffee shop. And you still may need access to that data, but at the same time, you may not have any read, write, And a lot of privileges may be, um, excluded from that access. Jimmy, now let's take it down to the PTO level. As you see, this gets, in, we'll go through kind of your timeline in, in a minute, but, but as you see this gets implemented and as you move toward implementation, 
what's the impact you think it's going to have on PTO beyond the fact it's going to improve your cybersecurity, it's going to get you towards zero trust? What's what's the user impact or what's the what are the users going to not see, hopefully nothing, but but what's what's the impact on, on that from a security perspective on, on the user? You got it. It should have no effect and it should be more secure. But let's just address the thing you said that really got in my craw. If my guys are doing a Starbucks and they're actually examining patents, our survey says, no, that does not happen. We do not allow that. And so because of that, you have to have that security paradigm. It's not only the secure back end, but it's also the secure front end. And what that front end includes is cyber hygiene. So we got to make sure that we get away from the fact of untrusted networks. And when we implement this architecture, if it does go through as we intend, then it will find out that it's going over a Wi-Fi that is not trusted and cut you off right away. The session will not complete. So it does make it more secure. Now, saying that too, when I look at the user experience, most of our applications are not examined on a mobile phone. However, our applicants might check the status of their examination, whether it be trademarks and or patents on their mobile phone device. Like, where am I? What do I have to do? Do I have to call my paralegal and make sure we're doing the right things? So in that regard, we're trying to make the Starbucks experience that you're talking about with status secure because we don't want to give that status to the nefarious individuals who are trying to steal that intellectual property. So when you say that, it is really near and dear to my heart about what we protect and how we protect it. I think that's a really helpful understanding because if you are addressing the where you are, what data you're looking at, and what you can, how you can access access that data, that's really the beginning of, if you will, the, the, that security piece because so, so much is on the user, right? I mean, we all know the weakest link. If you look at the Federal Information Security Management Act report to Congress every year, where are the biggest holes in agencies' cybersecurity? It's always related to the user. And, and this is kind of putting that user n- no longer in the center but really on the edge, right? Like, like your your the policies around the user, the the pieces and parts that it's taking the user mistakes and trying to mitigate them to a certain extent. Do I have that exactly? Yep. What we're trying to do is reduce the ability for the user to make that mistake. That's why I don't believe in passwords. I do believe in things like identification, validation, verification, and authentication. But that's all at the user level. And we really need to think about how we're doing that in a more robust fashion for the edge devices. But remember, the devices, what I like about SASE is the fact that the machine device control plane is out of the realm of the user. I don't care. I'm just doing a service, right? I don't care what server it sits on. But when I create that cybersecure session, What I can do then is ensure that machine device control plane actually has the right risk profile and it's a two-way scoring. So it's just as important for the user to be secure as the device is to be secure and everything in between, the application, the data, and the network. And so what I'm really trying to do is pull that scope, that 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 surface area of the user and bring it down into the technical such that the user doesn't have to care 
and that it's more of a machine device control plane. And that's the way we get our security done. As an example, too, the longer you're on, the less secure you are. Maybe every once in a while, the, the machine needs to authenticate the user without the user even knowing it. And so those things in SASE are going to be coming in the future. We just don't have that cybersecurity scoring profile yet. I know it's in the innovation and creativity of many of the patents that I've seen, but I can't disclose that other than I know it's coming. And I would complement that, Jason, with when you think about, as I alluded to later in, as we jokingly kind of throw it out there in the OSI stack, is that it, re- it truly is the context of, as Jamie articulated, not only the user, but the user should have a risk score, right? The actual device should have a risk score. The data has a sensitivity score. So being able to bring in a very basic layer all of that together and what access you give to that data, because really the crown jewels is the data. It's no longer the know. So when you go to protect that data, you have to understand the context in which everything's being accessed. And that is truly where least privilege, zero trust architectures come into play in a significant way. So, Jamie, the award is made. You're just kind of getting this started. How do you get started? How do you get the move to SASE? What are some of the things that within PTO and your partners with Netscope or whomever else you're working with, what are some of those next steps over the next six months to a year? Well, it's really easy to start because we're already underway with moving our systems from the old client-server environment into the new cloud environment. Now, that doesn't mean that everything can be moved to the cloud, but those applications that can be moved into the cloud can now be moved into the cloud with the philosophy and the design of SASE. And so because of that, every time we move one from our data center into the cloud, we're actually considering the design and putting those products in and making them more secure in a hot, hot operation. Right now, our design is for a hot, cold operation. In other words, we have the backups, and if we were to take a disaster, we could recover from a cold site. But we want hot, hot operations where we're actually in two different clouds at once, ensuring that we have a blue-green environment where continuity of operations will ensue no matter what. If the blue side goes down, the green side stays up and vice versa. So we're doing that as part of our transformation as we're moving and modernizing our client-server applications into the new cloud-native architectures. And roughly, you may not have this off the top of your head, but what's the percentage of your applications that are cloud-ready? What's the percentage that are in the cloud already? Any data you can share? Yes, these are just general numbers. I know right now that there's about 17% of our applications that are currently in the cloud. We are staging for about the next 17 to 20%. So we'll have around 35 to 40% of our applications in the cloud before the end of the year. And that's from almost 3 to 4% two years ago. So we're really doing it, but we're doing it very methodically. Remember, I told you some of the applications are not there. The ones that are going to be there are the next 20 to 30% where we're actually refactoring them with our product design teams, right? We're actually including cybersecurity and testing and doing the continuous integration and continuous deployment 
in these new applications. But there's about 30% of our applications that will never go out in the cloud. They are just too old. Uh, things like the old Algol-based registry that we use, which only has eight characters for a password. I can't. I have this poem that continues to this day, and I've tried to get the guys to say, I'm not rewriting Algol. Sorry, guys. I'll put the mitigating controls around it, but you're not going to get me to change a whole paradigm with Algol. Anyway, it's, it's just funny that the poems remain, and you keep seeing this come up. It's, it's all a journey, and it's all about not uh, doing, uh, what is it, forklift upgrades, but rather taking things and synchronizing them across and synchronizing them in while you can, taking advantage of the technologies as they surface. Jamie Bow, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation about SASE. My guests today are Jamie Holcomb, the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent Trademark Office, and Bo Hutto, the Vice President of Federal at Netscope. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Jamie Holcomb, the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent Trademark Office, and Bo Hutto, the Vice President of Federal at Netscope. Because SASE, as you said, is an architecture, it's the concepts around it is what's being built in to those applications that are going to the cloud. This is not a new product you're putting in. This is not a new widget that you're putting in, correct? I mean, what you're doing is it's a, it's a way you're building the applications and then putting the policy structures around it. Is that a, a good way to put it or is there a better way, to finer point to put on it? No, that's a great way to think of it because uh, those five pillars encompass the entire IT realm, right? User, application, data, network, and device, Right. If that encompasses the whole thing, when you design a system for continuity of operations, where does the business requirements come in? That hasn't even been talked about. And so then you have to think about how the product team is developing those and how you're trying to force the security to the edge such that you don't have to build applications that are contingent upon all these onerous security compliance requirements. And that's a big deal, right? The DevSecOps team, remember Sec is in the middle, DevSecOps, they can't be the business prevention team. They have to be considered as the enablers. And as long as you're enabling strategy and business functionality, you will serve your customers well. It's when you say, you put the hand up to the business guy and say, we can't do that. And you're like, well, wait a second. I know this can be done outside. And that's the big thing about commercial versus the government. The government is way behind in replacing the legacy. We need to come up to speed and start really modernizing these things, even thinking forward. One of my design philosophies, besides pushing security to the edge, is also the fact that I will not deploy something until I know I can rip it out. What? Yes, in three years, I want to replace any tool that I put in because that is the speed in which these tools are being rejuvenated and there's better tools in three years. So if you design something to last anywhere from five to 10 years, you're wrong. Design it to do what you needed to do in three years and then look to other things to replace it. The, the return on investment needs to be within three years or don't do it. I couldn't agree more with regards to return on investment and also what SASE has is really the, the architecture and where we're headed is truly doing a ton more 
with less. Giving your operators less silos of capability and more of a single pass architecture that allows for security, to Jamie's point, to not, like the user should not even see or feel that they are securely being, having controls put around uh, their access, right? And so part of that is also streamlining the architecture. What we've seen historically, and we've all lived through it for the past 25 years, is the silos of capability. And, And each silo introduces latency. But if you're able to put together a telco-grade architecture, single-pass architecture, that you're, you are building a platform that has all the services available within a single platform versus a portfolio of keeping your legacy gear relevant, that's massively different as a thought process. And really, SASE is driving to that. So stepping outside of the work that Jamie and PTO are doing and you're doing with them. What's the big challenge for a lot of agencies with SASE? This is one of those terms we've heard a lot over the last year, year and a half. But again, going back to Jamie's initial point, not sure anyone has done it yet, or, or this may be, again, what, if not the first, one of the first in a large agency. What's the big challenge to kind of get your head around SASE and move in that direction to this architecture? One of the greatest challenges is the legacy here on-premise today. And and there and that is a huge costly, whether it's a hardware refresh that's coming up and you're trying to figure out, hey, can I actually move that capability to a service, cloud security stack, perhaps? And then you continue to see those legacy, those larger vendors continue to pick up and adopt pieces of where things are headed to the cloud so that they can continue to stay relevant. The challenge with that really becomes that you're now building a very complex overall solution looks great on a data sheet, but in practice, it's not a single pane of glass. It's not a single platform that you're having your user experience kind of streamline type of controls around. So where the government has had a lot of challenges, where we've seen our customers with those challenges is it's really difficult to go and run in parallel a whole new security paradigm right? Because this is the first time in probably 25 years in any of our careers, we've had the opportunity to reimagine how our security stack can look. Should it be a security stack in the cloud as a service where the first hit that your user makes is to the service and whether they go on-prem or back or out to the cloud, it's just a very elegant, easy, very performant solution. And the legacy gear that resides within the government construct today and the policy in which it's procured is very challenging in which to set up that parallel of the new way of doing things going in a sassy direction versus continuing to just bolt on solutions that just become more cumbersome. And and with anything that's complex or complexity drives vulnerability. So I think that's one of the greatest challenges our, our federal government has today. And, and some agencies are really getting ahead of this and thinking, hey, we've got to do something massively different and that change needs to happen today. And I mean, USPTO are, are certainly one of those agencies leading the way. Jamie, uh, Bo brings up a really interesting point, the idea to reduce silos. 
you don't need these products that are over here, over there, over there that aren't integrated, connected. Do you have an estimate yet or have you started to work down this path to say, hey, we're going to be able to reduce the number of products or the number of silos or the number of whatever by a certain percentage? Have you started to kind of do that research? Well, of course, it's in our plans, but we haven't gotten the numbers yet. And numbers are very important because what they do is they guide the target, right? Always learned in the U.S. Army, you put the flag up on top of the hill that you want to take so that everybody knows. Right now, our flag is to ensure cybersecurity and ensure it goes to the edge. We don't have the numbers about how to get there. So when I say that, we have product teams now, and there's 30 product teams across the enterprise. There are four product lines, right? We have patents, trademarks, back office business, and we have the IT infrastructure. Back office and IT, the infrastructure, they're doing shared services while the patents and trademarks have that workflow, have that unique core differentiation that no one else in the world has. We are special. We are unique. We're the only guys that give out U.S. patents and U.S. trademarks. I have a monopoly. And because of that, I have a solemn duty to ensure it's efficient, cost-effective, and better, cheaper, and faster. So when you say, have we looked to it, and how are we going to decrease that? The way we're doing it with product teams is to decrease the capacity or increase the capacity. What's capacity? It's the amount of teams, the amount of product teams we have developing on a certain project. Remember, agile DevSecOps. So we have a certain amount of teams right now in our search, our patent search product, which are, it's huge right now because we have classification, we have uh, searching through AI and ML, we have uh, natural language processing. And so our capacity right there, there's a lot of teams, but there's not a lot of teams in other areas where we're very safe and secure and stable. We have superior performance on our, on our financials. I know down to the penny where every dollar is spent because our financial systems are fantastic. So the capacity of that team is less than the capacity of the other product teams. And that's how we're flexing. That's how we add and subtract. And that's how we increase or decrease our expenditures. So it's not necessarily about the cost of a tool or a set of tools. It's really how what teams what people you're using to develop those next generation products or to do business process or engineering or whatever it is. Is that correct? That is correct because 75% of our expenditures, labor, 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 labor. And so we have to look at our labor, our intellectual property, right? It's all about thinking and doing and acting. It's not about the things, the material aspects of it. We're protecting intellectual property. And in, in doing so, we use that labor most effectively. Jamie, we know that SASE is a piece to the Zero Trust journey. What are some of the other pieces you're starting to look at? What are some of the other steps you're taking that will either build on top of SASE or complement SASE as you go forward with Zero Trust? Yeah, a lot of the different things at the machine control device layer are very promising. Because at that layer, what we can do is ensure that machine-to-machine trust is either gained or subtracted based on the session and the security, the, the cyber risk profile of those controlled devices. So at the machine layer, that fifth pillar, I really see a lot of promise because it pulls away 
the responsibility from the user and puts more on the machines. Now, you got to be careful, though. There's always got to be a person on the loop in those machine type of scenarios. It only once it's proven. I hate being bleeding edge. When I get my nose punched in boxing and the blood goes all over your shirt, that's not a good thing, right? So I'll be leading edge or a fast follower. The reason I'm out in front on this sassy is because it's an architecture and I want to take, I'm not going to bleed on this one because I know how to work it. And I know my guys are really competent, not only with the old way of doing business, but the new way of doing business. So we have something that we colloquially term, we haven't trademarked it yet, but maybe it's called the new ways of working NWOW with an exclamation point, right? And by the way, the hashtag goes in front of it so you can search on all that stuff. And wow, the new ways of working. And so if we approach anything in that regard, oh, wait a minute, that's the old way of thinking. What you do, you need to do is put your head on right and do new ways of thinking that are better, cheaper, and faster. All right, great, Jamie. Now I have a new acronym to remember, N-W-O-W, and wow. Jamie, I just want to end our conversation because I've very much enjoyed it, but from your perspective and, and as you look forward, do you offer any advice? I know you're just beginning the sassy journey, but you've looked into this. You've done your research. You you put a, some sort of RFP out and made an award. So there's a lot of the front-end work has been done. For other CIOs or other agencies that are starting to look at sassy, do you have any uh, offer any recommendations or any advice? Yes, I do. One is learn the commercial definition of sunk cost. And if your current pilots are not rendering the pros and cons and benefits and costs that you need, stop spending money now. It's gone. Who cares? Don't throw good money after bad and start fresh or at least take a real good look and don't keep doing what you've been doing. Definition of insanity, thinking about different results, doing the same thing over and over again. It's crazy. So. With that regard, start anew, adapt, change your direction, be big and bold. Why does anybody want to do small things? I don't understand. Do big things. Do meaty things. Take a bite out of crime. I'm going after fraud because 15% of the apparel in the United States is fraudulent. Everybody knows about the Rolex watches and the Gucci bags. I want to stop that in its tracks. Although I'm not an enforcement authority, I do have the right to issue trademarks and register them. And so with that, I'm going to work with the FBI and DHS to make sure fraud is prevented as much as we can. So, yes, do big, bold things. Don't keep doing the same things. Oh, and by the way, use that whole thing in business that's 30, 60, and 90 days. And don't say, don't accept the procurement guy saying, we have 120 days before we can do this. No, 90 days. And at 60 days, I want an award. Get it done fast. Have a sense of urgency. Challenge the status quo. And here I was just asking about Sassy, and you you went off on a, a, a much broader perspective. So it's great advice either way, and I appreciate it, Jamie. So let me thank my guest. Uh, Jamie Holcomb is the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office Chief Information Officer. Jamie, you're always very inspiring. It's always great to uh, talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jason. It was my pleasure to talk with you. And uh, let me also thank uh, Bo Hutto, the Vice President of Federal at Netscope. Bo, thanks so much for taking the time as well. Hey, Jason, really appreciate the opportunity. It was great being on with you. 
We have to take a break. When we come back, we'll switch gears and talk to Dr. Kelly Fletcher, the principal deputy CIO of the Defense Department, about cybersecurity and weapon systems. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this segment of the show, I caught up with Dr. Kelly Fletcher, the principal deputy CIO of the Defense Department, after her recent panel at the INSA-FCA Intelligence and National Security Summit. You mentioned cyber, and obviously you mentioned CMMC, which is always exciting, so that's coming soon. But in the meantime, you guys seem to be doing some sort of, lack of a better word, new initiative to say, okay, what's already existing, and do they meet our at least minimal cyber requirements? How are you going through that with weapon systems and other systems related? And obviously, knowing there's some sensitivities here, what's the process, and, and can you give us any numbers, any statistics, or any, any other data? Yeah, great question. So the first thing I would say is CIOs really have the authority to disconnect systems, right? So we we sign ATOs. Uh, You know, there's an authorizing official, and they authorize systems to be on the network. Also, we authorize, you know, entire enclaves, right? So nonprofits that have access to certain parts of our network or private companies that have access to our networks. We authorize this. And something that we haven't done very much in the past is say, oh, you failed. We've assessed you, and you failed. And now we're taking you off the network. Or we've assessed you and you failed, and now you're no longer authorized to operate on the network. And by doing that, so by doing the assessments regularly, by increasing the pace of assessments, and then by taking action when folks fail, we are changing the culture. I know that there's been the push from DOD to the continuous ATO. Is this kind of a step in that direction, or is that is this related but separate? Uh, I would say it's related but separate. So continuous ATO is really important. I think that's going to get us to a more robust posture overall. In the interim, right now, what we have to do is enforce those requirements that we have when we look at these ATOs, even not continuously. The challenge here, of course, is the mission versus cyber. If you take this system off or this, even if it's an industry-related system, what does that do to mission? How do you weigh, how do you find that balance? Yeah, that's, so this is something we talk about a great length. So we are not taking things off. If there's a mission being supported, yeah, we're not going to turn that thing off. But we're going to get after it with alacrity, right? We're going to shine a light on it. We're going to bring in the experts. They're going to fix it. Uh, in some cases, we haven't pulled things offline, even when they failed. But what we've done is flood resources in and leadership attention to fix it rapidly. And I think just shining the light on it sometimes gets folks to move a little bit more quickly. Is that what you're finding, that all of a sudden, by, for instance, talking at a conference like this about that this process, people go, oh, we better check, we better do more. It's kind of spurring action. Absolutely. So at the highest levels in the department, when somebody fails a cyber inspection, it's no longer like, oh, what are you going to do? Now we are enforcing this. Like, it is the commander's job. You know, like, it's it's bringing some pressure to this domain. Roughly speaking, would you say you've taken any off the network? A few, some, any? Yeah, I'm not going to give you numbers, but I can say we have been enforcing ATOs. We have been enforcing connections in a way we haven't been historically. I want to shift, speaking of enforcing, and, and you mentioned the idea of uh, when if something's not working, a laptop, a desktop, uh, a network, you want to know about it. It's the right thing to say, of course, but people go, okay, well, are they really? do they really care? So, so I guess the question is, how do you care? How are you showing that you care? And, and beyond, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Martel coming to you at lunch and interrupting your lunch, <laughs> complaining about his email, what are some of the ways you guys uh, at the DOD CIO's office are doing that? First, I would just want to highlight what the Air Force has done, which the Air Force has very mechanically and intentionally rolled out and said, how do we fix this problem? What is the long pole in the tent? And they've 
rolled out new laptops to folks. Also, I want to highlight what we've done with Microsoft Office 365. Rolling out 365 to the majority of the Department of Defense has fundamentally changed the capabilities folks have, their ability to work from home, what is accessible to them sort of in, in the business side of DOD. It's been a huge change. So, so as you go through Office 365 and as you as you are looking at this, are there specific metrics you're looking at? You mentioned Beyond Help Desk. What are some of those metrics? I would say Beyond Help Desk, we're looking at latency, right? Latency across the network, which you can measure that. So there's all sorts of sensors that we have in place already that are giving us hints as to what the problem is. But now we are actually compiling those and using them to inform how we devote our resources in the future to solving these problems. We have to take a break. You just heard from Dr. Kelly Fletcher, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Defense Department. When we come back, we'll switch gears again and talk to Lori Wade, the Intelligence Community's Chief Data Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this next segment of the show, I caught up with Lori Wade, the Intelligence Community's Chief Data Officer, after she spoke at the recent INSA-FCA Intelligence and National Security Summit. You mentioned a new IC private sector framework. I know maybe that you can't talk too much about it, but what can you tell me more about it? What's it going to focus on? How's it going to work? Any, any details? When I came into the role and they told me that, so the second part of my position, which is the assistant DNI for data and partnership, I actually changed the name. I re, I refocused the whole part of that organization to be data and partnership interoperability. And the idea behind that is so that when we look at the partnership relationships and engagement and how we are doing that as an IC and against what priorities, against the national intelligence strategy, against the DNI priorities, against the intelligence planning guidance, how are we organizing not only within the IC, but with our private sector partners and in a different way. So the framework is about how do we pull that approach together and then where do we look at where there are barriers of which we've doing that like in the past like how do we how do we work with our partners in a co-innovating kind of way and not just looking at our partners in the private sector as vendors like how are we actually taking big issues big areas against our adversaries to them and working with them to look to the future and not just on the focus now issue and like I need this kind of like capability delivered today, but how are we really looking at the next decade? And so I'm actually working with my ICCIO colleagues, with our AIM, a new director, and, and with our mission side, so the NIMS, to look to see what are those big focus areas like Web 3.0, immersive technology, and I'm going to pull together a roundtable. And that's the kind of approach we want. And so the framework really lays the, that sort of philosophy about how we want to work with the private sector in the future. But then what are the practical ways we're going to do that? We're going to uh, implement a front door. So we make it easy for our private sector partners to come into the IC. They can come in and then be matched with what requirements uh, and addressing some of these big issues. Uh, the whole PPTE, the public and private talent exchange is a big part of it, right? Also, then how are we going to move forward capabilities that we do need uh, and where do we need to accelerate? And how do we do that in a way that we haven't in the past that is actually going to benefit not only our workforce, but also the private sector as we work together uh, to go after some of these big, large challenges. And then how do we communicate and measure? And that's another part of the framework is there will be uh, almost like a newsletter type approach, if you will, but it won't be. It will be digital, right, of course. But the idea is, right, we need to communicate the successes and measure the successes 
and and make sure that it's just a constant two-way partnership. So really, that's the elements at a very high level that's going to be spelled out in the framework. Timing of this, you hope to have it out in, in the fall, sooner or later? Yeah, sooner. I mean, it's in it's in review right now. We're having a meeting. There's a meeting scheduled to go through it with the leadership. It's already been vetted through uh, the various intelligence community uh, private sector working groups. So it's reflective of input from all the private sector partnership groups within the intelligence community. So it's really now uh, within the ODNI leadership to review, and then and then we'll release that out. And the idea is just to make it easier in many ways for your vendor partners and the IC to work together. So this is ODNI led, but it's going to imagine cross the entire IC community. Correct. And the DNI has set that as a priority, right? Is how do we engage in a different way with our private sector partners? Of course, these things take time to roll out, and, and maybe it's maybe a little premature to ask, but. Uh, well, anyways, do you have some short-term goals that you, okay, let's get that front door up by yeah, January up. 1st. No, let's... I think it's already, I think it's being released. So it's, uh, we're going to be doing my approach. And I think that's why I talked about the IC data strategy, the same with this strategic focus, but immediate attention, deliberate attention on action and implementation. So. And then uh, you mentioned the data strategy. So I know that that's a forthcoming Again, timing on that, and what should folks expect generally? I've set an aggressive goal to get it completely through the review process by the end of October. <laughs> uh, so, uh, because, and what you can expect is we're going to roll that data strategy out. And in October, we already have an offsite planned. I, I, I guess I mentioned uh, during the talk that I'm the uh, chair of the IC uh, Chief Data Officer Council. We already have an offsite plan to uh, build the action plan for the first year. And then, I guess, finally, you've been in your position now for about three and a half months, four months or so. Can you just give me a sense of, of what you're seeing? What, what have you learned? What, what, what's the big takeaway for the first couple of months of, of, of it being the role of the intelligence community CDO? Okay, so I'm not a stranger to it because I've been in, uh, was in a, uh, been in the data game and the IC for a while. But I would say I've been excited by the focus on these issues from the senior leadership. And I, we had just gone through, you know, the big uh, strategic investment process, and I led the data group of that. And I was encouraged by the support and the types of questions that I'm, I'm getting from not only the DNI but the PDNI as far as how we need to look to the future of how we need to be in doing investing and prioritizing now, and how central data and the digital transformation is to that. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard from Lori Wade, the Intelligence Community Chief Data Officer. She spoke at the recent INSA and FCA Intelligence and National Security Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.